Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, October 4th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the sexist history of the rollerboard suitcase, plus the facts about Merck's new COVID-19 antiviral pill, including its connection to Thor, God of Thunder, and the return of Nick Lutzko's absurdist Spirit Halloween music videos. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So you may remember over the summer when I talked about how we had electric cars all the way back in the 19th century, and how one of the reasons we didn't end up devoting the funding to make them the practical frontrunners in the long term was because they came to be thought of as women's cars. Basically, electric cars then, like now, had battery limitations that meant you couldn't get too far on a single charge. They were also much easier to operate and maintain, and since women at the time were perceived as not supposed to be traveling too far on their own anyways, the distance restrictions weren't an issue, like they were for men who needed to go off on business and adventures. And of course, women couldn't possibly learn how to fix complicated, always-breaking-down gas-powered cars, but men wanted to be able to prove their abilities. So gas-powered cars were for manly men, and electric cars were for women. But since hardly any women actually drove back then, the funding needed to fix things like the battery limitations on electric cars eventually fizzled out and we got stuck with gas-powered cars for most of the 20th century. Electric cars are far from the only innovation to suffer from weird ideas about machismo. There have been countless other breakthroughs that stalled out for similar reasons, but one I just learned about is the wheeled suitcase, or rolling luggage, or rollerboards, suitcases with wheels on the bottom that you pull along, whatever you call them. Credit for the invention of the wheeled suitcase usually goes to two men. First, Bernard Sato in 1970, who put some wheels from a wardrobe on the bottom of a large suitcase and attached a strap to the top. He perfected the design a bit as he applied for a patent, and while it was slow to take off, eventually became a little bit of a hit. But then in 1987, a pilot named Robert Plath invented the Rollaboard. That is R-O-L-L-A board, Rollaboard. Not Rollerboard, which is the more common term you often hear gate agents using when they tell you they're gonna have to check your carry-on suitcase because there's no more room in the overhead bins. Rollaboard is a trademark from Plath and the company he eventually founded, Travel Pro International. The big upgrades from Sato's design were that the suitcase was now upright, as we tend to think of them today. Sato's was still on its side in the orientation you might carry it by the handle. And instead of a strap to pull it along, he added the long telescoping handle. But like many great and in some way obvious inventions, Sadow and Plath weren't really the first, exactly. A Polish artist named Alfred Krupa invented a wheeled suitcase similar to Sadow's 16 years before him in 1954. Krupa had a lot of other cool inventions, like a kind of water ski used for walking on water, and a glass-bottom boat so that you could observe underwater as you sailed along, but he struggled to retain patents on those and eventually gave up. But even before Krupa, there was another invention that was in use throughout train and bus stations. It was kind of like a little cart with wheels that you could fold up and you could strap onto your suitcase so that you could pull it along behind you. These started showing up at least as early as the 1940s, according to newspaper ads and photographs. But why did it take from the 40s to the 70s before suitcases with wheels already attached to them became a thing? Well, there were a few things happening. 
The first thing that had to happen was the innovation of the modern suitcase as opposed to larger trunks. This happened around the turn of the 20th century going into mid-century as fewer and fewer porters were employed. Those were the workers who would handle people's luggage for them basically door to door. So with less porters around and more people traveling, more people were now left to carry their own luggage, meaning they needed a smaller, more manageable carry-all than a bulky, heavy trunk. Then, especially as more and more people began to take planes, those folded-up wheeled carts became more popular. While the New York Times says that lots of travel shops were selling them in the 60s, The Guardian says that they were more of a niche product geared towards women. There's even a great letter to the editor from 1967 in Leicestershire, England, in which a woman was forced to buy a ticket for her wheeled suitcase cart because the train station said, quote, anything on wheels should be classed as a pushchair, end quote, aka a stroller. So she vented to the newspaper that if she had tried to take the bus with roller skates on, would they have charged her as a passenger or a stroller? Maybe these fold-up wheel attachments for suitcases were more common for plane travel versus buses, or in the States versus in Britain, but The Guardian argues that the reason why they never really took off, and why it took several decades to go from folded-up wheeled attachment to suitcases with built-in wheels, was because of, well, fragile masculinity, and stereotypical assumptions both about people's abilities and their roles in society based on gender. Quoting The Guardian, Two assumptions about gender were at work here. The first was that no man would ever roll a suitcase because it was simply unmanly to do so. The second was about the mobility of women. There was nothing preventing a woman from rolling a suitcase. She had no masculinity to prove. But women didn't travel alone, the industry assumed. If a woman traveled, she would travel with a man who would then carry her bag for her. This is why the industry couldn't see any commercial potential in the rolling suitcase. It took more than 15 years for the invention to go mainstream even after Sato had patented it. End quote. That changed after Plath's innovation turned the suitcase upright and attached that handle. Now, I'm not sure if it was something about the look or the fact that Plath, a pilot himself, initially marketed the rollerboard towards airline professionals, maybe making it seem a bit more of a serious item, or just the fact that more women were traveling independently at that point, so even if it was sometimes thought a bit feminine, there was a big enough market to continue investing in it. In any case, it eventually became ubiquitous and no longer a threat to most men's masculinity to be seen pulling along a rollerboard behind them. But I think what Katrine Marsal has to say in The Guardian is rather astute, so I'm going to end with quoting her here at length. Quote, The world is full of people who would rather die than let go of certain notions of masculinity. Doctrines like real men don't eat vegetables, real men don't get checkups for minor things, and real men don't have sex with condoms kill very real men every single day. Our society's ideas on masculinity are some of the most unyielding ideas, and our culture often values the preservation of certain concepts of masculinity over life itself. In this context, such ideas are certainly powerful enough to hold back technological innovation. Ideas about gender also limit what we even count as technology. We talk about the Iron Age and the Bronze Age. We could also talk about the Ceramic Age and the Flax Age, since these technologies were just as important. But technologies associated with women are not considered to be inventions in the same way that those associated with men are. Gender answers the riddle of why it took 5,000 years for us to put wheels on suitcases. It's perhaps easy to think that we wouldn't make similar mistakes today, but many of the structural problems are still here. 
We still have male-dominated industries not interested in dealing with the fact that women influence 80% of all consumer decisions. Products are still being built and designed with only men in mind, and we have a financial system that stubbornly refuses to see the potential of women's ideas. Today, less than 1% of UK venture capital goes to all-female teams. Among the very few women who do get funded, a very large majority are white. Of course, venture capital isn't everything. There are other ways to fund and scale innovation, but the fact that men, more or less, have a monopoly is certainly a symptom of an economy where women's ideas are not heard. End quote. At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free-to-play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win. One, match any three symbols for an instant win. Two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes. Or three, win up to $2,000. If you collect three trophies, FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. On Friday morning, pharmaceutical company Merck announced their antiviral pill to curb the risk of hospitalization and death from COVID-19 was successful in its phase three trial and that they are now applying for an emergency use authorization from the FDA. The drug, molnupiravir, was announced as being able to cut the risk of hospitalization and death from COVID-19 in half for those at risk who were already infected. This is a huge deal for a number of reasons. While there are a handful of potential treatments for COVID-19 and plenty that people like to think work, only one currently has full FDA approval, remdesivir. And other treatments like monoclonal antibodies or convalescent plasma also require IV transfusions. By contrast, molnupiravir is a pill that would be taken twice a day for five days. Now, monoclonal antibodies do reduce the risk of hospitalization and death more than molnupiravir has shown to just yet, at 85% compared to 50, but the cost and inconvenience of monoclonal antibodies are both very high. Having a pill that you could just take at home is a game changer. For the trial, the team used participants from around the world who had recently tested positive, had the onset of symptoms, and had at least one risk factor, such as age or another health condition. Quoting Ars Technica, After 29 days of follow-up, 53 out of 377 participants who received the placebo were hospitalized with COVID-19, and 8 of those participants died. Among those who received the drug, only 28 of 385 were hospitalized, and none of those patients died. Put another way, 7.3% of patients on the drug were either hospitalized or died, compared with 14.1% in the placebo group. Merck also highlighted that the trial was global and that the drug appeared to work equally well against varying SARS-CoV-2 variants, including Delta, Gamma, and Mu, end quote. The trial actually ended early because the results were clear enough that a group of independent experts said it didn't need to continue. Molnupiravir began as a potential treatment for influenza and was about to enter clinical trials when the pandemic began. Here's how it works, quoting National Geographic. 
Antiviral drugs are used against many viruses, including for herpes and the flu. These drugs take advantage of the fact that viruses need to replicate inside a person's cells in order to sicken them. Antivirals stop the replication process so the illness doesn't progress. The Merck drug works by introducing RNA-like building blocks into the virus's genome as it multiplies, which creates numerous mutations, disrupts replication, and kills the virus. Keeping the virus from multiplying is important, because the more it replicates, destroying cell after cell, the sicker a person usually becomes, says Waleed Javed, an epidemiologist and director of infection prevention and control at Mount Sinai downtown in New York, who was not involved in the study. Additionally, when enough virus is inside the body, the immune system may go into overdrive. At a certain point, the body detects a virus it has never seen and will throw everything against it, like a tank coming at a small target, he says. This helps the body eliminate the virus, but can cause sometimes deadly collateral damage throughout the body in its wake. End quote. The main concern right now is that those virus mutations the drug introduces could, as our Technica puts it, quote, create problems for human enzymes too, end quote. So pregnant people were not included in the trials and may not be eligible, at least for those currently pregnant while infected, though safety results so far have been strong. Even side effects are relatively mild, maybe some gastrointestinal issues. And as former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb pointed out to CNBC, you're probably only taking it for five days, not like a more intense several-month-long regime, so mild side effects are more tolerable. Now, while one of the big benefits would be being able to take this pill at home and not needing to go into a hospital, the idea of accessibility is a big one. The U.S. has agreed to buy 1.7 million courses of the drug as soon as it receives emergency use authorization. Who will be eligible and how that will be parsed out remains to be seen. I would say that rocky as the road may be at first, if this proves to work well, it has a huge advantage when it comes to accessibility since pills can be so easily transported and stored. And Merck has already agreed to work with generic manufacturers to help get even more courses of the drug to low- and middle-income countries. Oh, and about the name, Molnupiravir. It's based on Mjolnir, Thor's hammer. As Dean Lee, Merck's head of research and development, said, quote, This is a hammer against SARS-CoV-2, regardless of the variant. End quote. So Nick Lutzko is back with his latest and perhaps final installment in his Spirit Halloween theme song series, which began last year. This one, called Spirit Halloween Planet, begins in a post-apocalyptic world with Lutzko singing, Why not make what's left of the planet into a Spirit Halloween? Fair point. Why not? I mean, when the apocalypse comes, I'm sure all that will be left are cockroaches and Spirit Halloweens. There's a lot of world-building kind of in-jokes that happen in Let's Go's music, which are not just about Spirit Halloween. He also has songs on The Gremlins and Brendan Fraser. But you don't necessarily have to follow all of that world-building to enjoy the absurdity and the catchy, clever lyrics. With this release, the most highly produced Spirit Halloween song yet from Let's Go, he's also released a new EP called Halloween Planet that includes some of his other non-Spirit Halloween songs as well. Link to that in the show notes, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'll also drop a link to all three of Let's Go's iconic Spirit Halloween music videos in one convenient trilogy video. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.